few minutes, we'll be reading from Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, we will look at the whole chapter. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there, you can do so. We face opposition in this life, and truth be told, if we remain faithful, um, we will face opposition until the day we die. In the early Tozer, a word in season, we read this. Bible-believing local churches are completely different than the world. The world and the true church are by the nature of them irreconcilably opposed to each other. This opposition arises not from the things they do or do not do, but from two opposing spirits which dwell in them. The world may differ from itself, may even quarrel with itself to no end, but for all that it is of one piece still, moved by one spirit and indwelt by one soul. So the church with its individual members is of one piece also, possessing the very nature of God, the indwelt by the Holy Spirit. These two spirits are as far asunder as holiness and sin and are forever in active opposition to each other. They can never be reconciled as long as each retains its essential nature. The once-born world can never forgive the twice-born church her superior position. Always that which is born after the flesh will persecute that which is born of the spirit. The spirit-born man can escape the world's hostility only by making compromises sufficiently vital to neutralize it. Unfortunately, such also grieve and quench the spirit within. We escape the reproach of the cross and thus the opposition of the world by various diplomatic sidesteppings, which are labeled wisdom or broad-mindedness, but which are in blunt actuality plain cowardice. Since September 11, 2001, Americans have had to live under the threat of terrorist attacks. It has changed many aspects of the way that we live. We face increased security checks at the airport and at borders. We hear of possible terror attacks at shopping malls and sporting events. We even come out, uh, came out with this terrorist threat assessment so people know based upon the color how likely there is to be a terrorist attack. I must admit that I'm not really certain what we are supposed to do about the threat of terrorism other than report suspicious-looking characters and packages that are abandoned. It has proven both difficult and frustrating for our government, mainly because no one walks around yelling, hey, I'm a terrorist. In other words, the enemy is by all appearances invisible. They hide and use surprise attacks to achieve their goal. This threat of terrorist attacks should not be all that new to Christians. As centuries ago, Paul told us to put on the full armor of God that you, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our enemy has used deception, trickery, and other schemes to try to destroy or at least make God's people ineffective for centuries from doing what God has called them to do. If we truly want to finish the race and accomplish God's purpose in our life, 
then we must learn how to triumph over opposition. If you're willing and able, would you please stand with me as we read from Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, we'll be reading the whole chapter. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Nehemiah 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messages to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop? Why leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, and Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man would I be? I will not go in. And I understand and saw that God has not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballa had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember, Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. And so the wall was finished on the 25th day on the month of Elu in the 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Erah, and his son Jehoahanan, and taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Let us pray. Father, as followers of Christ, we 
will face opposition. Lord, if we're truly following, there will be those that oppose us. May we learn from your word this morning how we are to respond. Speak for your saints are listening. May we hear your word clearly this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So far, Nehemiah and the rebuilding of this wall has had to stand up to violent threats from the enemy. In chapter 5, he had to deal with the internal conflict between the wealthy Jews and the poor Jews. He's been tested as a leader. The wall is almost done. The breaches have been repaired. The wall is complete except for the door in the gates. The enemy does not give up. And here in chapter 6, he hits again with four types of opposition. They are intrigue, innuendo, intimidation, and infiltration. In the first three, Satan moves and Nehemiah responds. In the last one, Nehemiah moves and Satan responds. So let's learn this morning how to triumph over opposition. First, let's see Satan's scheme of intrigue. Satan's scheme of intrigue. The enemies of God are relentless in their opposition of believers. Do not think for one instant that the enemy is going to back down. Here we see Satan using the scheme of intrigue to do harm to Nehemiah and impede the building project. So let's look at this scheme of intrigue. First, let's see the advancement. In spite of all the problems, in spite of all of the delays, the work of God was remarkably still advancing. Now I want us to quickly see at least three things that led to their advancement because I believe that we can learn from them and it would be beneficial to us as well. First, let's see that they were conscious of the enemy. They were conscious of the enemy. They knew that Satan was on the prowl looking for opportunities to infiltrate. Nehemiah points out that there are no more breaches, which is to say that there are no more gaps, no more breaks in the wall. The builders are careful not to leave any breaks that the enemy could potentially use to infiltrate the city covertly. They knew the building project was pressing and the wall uh, was there for protection. We must learn that if there is a break in our life, if there's a time in our life where we have weakness in our life, if we're not walking with the Lord, then Satan will exploit that weakness. Secondly, they refuse complacency in their work. Nehemiah says that at that time, the doors were not set in the gates. They, they had made significant progress, but there are still areas that need to be secure. Church, one of the greatest hindrances to the work of God in any church is the complacency of God's people. What so often happens is we gain a little ground and then we just settle in and we become satisfied with the status quo. We're like, okay, well, we've gained some ground. We're good. We're just going to keep doing what we've always done because it worked then. So surely it's going to just keep on working and we grow complacent. Third, they had confidence in God. All of the problems they faced while building did not stop them. 
When they were overwhelmed, Nehemiah appointed them to God, and they rose to the task. We must keep our eyes on God and move forward. We cannot be sidetracked by problems. So that's the advancement. We see that the wall continues to advance. Now let's see the approach. Satan uses subtle deception and plausible-sounding appeals. But his intent is always destruction. The enemies hear that God's work is advancing, so they scheme up a new little plan to come against Nehemiah. Any good leader knows that along with progress comes an intensification of enemy opposition. Think of David, never losing a battle, but fails with Bathsheba. Blessed by God and successful as at doing what God had called him to do, but he became complacent just enough to stay home when he sends others into battle, and Satan orchestrates his fall. Jesus had just finished hearing, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased and was immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he would face 40 days of intense testing. The Jewish people had accomplished so much, and Satan took notice. And he's furious. Great victories in your life does not always mean that you will finish well. We must understand that some of the most dangerous times of our spiritual life will be on the heels of some of our greatest victories. What do they do? What do the enemies do? They invite Nehemiah to meet with them. Sounds innocent, right? Hey, come meet with us in Ono. Ono was about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. This was a subtle attempt to draw Nehemiah away from the work. It sounds innocent enough. Come on, let's meet together. Let's iron out our differences. Sure, you're, you're, you are in um, uh, peace right now, and surely you want a good relationship and want favor with your neighbors. We just want to foster a little mutual understanding between us. It all sounds so good. But nothing good ever comes from this kind of meeting. It's just a change of strategy on the enemy's part. They're just coming to Nehemiah from a different approach. Meeting with the enemy will never enable us to do God's work. It will instead only serve to weaken us. Satan is not playing games with us. Satan is seeking to devour us. This is just another one of his tricks. We read, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals, 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three. Here, the Corinthian believers are allowing themselves to be deceived by the way of their relationship with false teachers in Corinth. This was a result of socializing rather than separating. This is why Scripture is so clear on the doctrine of separation when it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them in Ephesians 5.11. Or fear the Lord and depart from evil, Proverbs 3.7. Our objective is is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not to fellowship with those who proclaim false doctrine. We hear all the time, well, we should be more ecumenical. 
as a church or as, as Christians. Christians should be more ecumenical and get along with all these other religions. You know, Mormons and Jehovah's Witness and Roman Catholicism. We should just be more ecumenical in everything that we do. But to set aside the essentials of the gospel that say we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is not ecumenical, it is sinful. We divide over the gospel because heaven and hell hang in the balance. The Apostle Paul strongly opposed the Judaizers. Because why? They added circumcision to salvation. And you know what Paul said to them? Let them be damned. That's pretty strong. Don't you think that's some strong language? Paul said if you add human works to justification, then you're severed from Christ. Nehemiah was able to discern between right and wrong. He had the wisdom to see these guys are up to no good. They were seeking to cause him harm. We need more biblical discernment today, not less of it. Tragically, many of us would have accepted this invitation would have said, oh, that sounds good. And we would walk straight into our downfall. This sweet-sounding letter was actually a letter of deceit. Nehemiah used wisdom, and we must also use wisdom. Scripture tells us, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil, Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Nehemiah knew nothing good would come of the meeting. The enemy has no good intentions. He's not interested in advancing God's kingdom. His de- desire is to stop the work of God. Third, let's see the answer. Let's see the answer. A good leader never leaves the work of God to meet the enemies. To leave Jerusalem and go to one of the villages of Ono would mean leaving the work that God had called him to do. God's work is great. We don't have time to throw, uh, throw our uh, time away fraternizing with the enemy. We waste far too much time playing the world's games as it is. While we are busy playing, we are ignoring the words of Jesus Christ who said, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white with harvest in John 4.35. Our work is too important to waste time hobnobbing with the wicked. It is our duty to persevere, not allow outside distractions to keep us from doing God's work. Anything that pulls away from our priority is a plot of the devil. Nehemiah knew he was doing a great work. Note that the enemy is relentless. Four times, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem invite Nehemiah to come and meet. Over and over and over again. And he answers them the same way every time. He refused to allow the enemy to wear him down. So we've seen the intrigue. Satan comes and tries to pique your interest and and do things with intrigue to to get us, to oppose us, and to get us to fall away. Now let's see Satan's slanderous innuendo. Satan's slanderous innuendo. After four frustrated attempts to lure Nehemiah into an ambush, it's time to change some tactics. The enemy may change tactics, but his diabolical desires will never change as he continues to attempt to destroy the things 
of God. So what does Satan do in this slanderous innuendo? There's an open letter, sending an open letter. We have this fifth letter from Sanballat. It's an open letter. An open letter can be read by anyone. In other words, Sanballat wanted the public to know the content of the letter. And this is how the enemy works, right? The enemy works through the rumor mill, trying to undermine with slander, and in this case, Nehemiah's reputation and Nehemiah's authority. And so we see that it stated an outright lie. Stated an outright lie. This letter accuses Nehemiah of wanting to be king. It's a veiled threat here by Sanballat to basically say to Nehemiah, this information is going to find its way back to the king. And that would be considered high treason by Nehemiah. And it would destroy his character and put his life in danger. Slanderous is a dangerous tool in the hands of the enemy. Webster defines slander as this. A false tale or report maliciously uttered, tending to injure the reputation of another. The malicious utterance of defamatory reports. The dissemination of malicious tales or suggestions to the injury of another. The utterance of false charges or misrepresentations which defame and damage another's reputation. Slander is a dangerous business. You know what I often hear as a pastor, and I've even heard this, heard this said about me as a pastor. Well, it's true. It's true. And whether it is true or false is not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you saying something or spreading something that intentionally misrepresents something, someone else or causes them to be looked at in a negative light? Does it harm other people when it leaves your mouth? That's the issue. Slander mongers and those who listen to slander, it has been said, if I had my way, would all be strung up the talkers by the tongue, the listeners by their ears. Slander is a devil's work. His very name, devil, means slanderer or accuser. Slander and lying both come from the devil. Jesus said so. He told us that the devil was the original liar in John eight forty four. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Lying and slander are closely related to other sins of the tongue, including gossip and rumors and backbiting and talebearing. None of these are to be traits of a Christian. He that hideth hatred with lying lips, and he that uttereth a slander is a fool, Proverbs ten eighteen says. An ungodly man diggeth up evil, and his lips there is as a burning fire. A forward man sows strife, and a whisper separates chief friends, Proverbs sixteen twenty seven and 28. I said I will take 
heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. A person that can't control their tongue is doing the devil's work. In fact, I would say that it's doubtful that a habitual liar, gossip, slanderer, or etc. is even a Christian. If any man among you seem to be righteous and bridleth not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is in vain. James 1.26 The person who claims to be a Christian but can't control their mouth, James says, you're deceived and your religion is empty. It's worthless. We should expect this from the enemy, but not from God's people. It is unfortunate how often leaders have to deal with this kind of garbage in churches. Churches get destroyed by loose-lipped liars who regularly lie because they go out and they lambast God's people. Peter said, wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisies and all envies and all evil speakings, 1 Peter 2, 1. Look at verse 7 there in Nehemiah. He's being accused of appointing prophets to preach that he was going to become king of Judah. And it's going to be reported to the king, Nehemiah. Unless you meet with us, we're going to let the king know. Next, let's see, stating Nehemiah's response letter. This letter was sent to Nehemiah. It was an open public accusation against him. He would not remain silent. If he remained silent, the accusation would catch. And some people, you know, believe everything they hear. Nehemiah's response letter is simple. I love it. You're a liar. (laughs) You're a liar. Nehemiah had a personal relationship with the king of Persia. God had used Artaxerxes for equipping the equipping of Nehemiah with the supplies for the work in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah was a man of character. There's no way that Nehemiah was going to betray the king. The enemy was lying, and Nehemiah called him on it. You're a liar. Look at verse 8. Nehemiah tells him that he is inviting this out of his own mind. These are wicked and evil people with evil hearts, and their evil knows no bounds. The hatred of God and his workers is seen in every single aspect of their lives. Every inclination of their heart is evil, and it shows. Jeremiah tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34. For as he thinks in his own heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. We live our life from our heart out. The heart is the decision-making center of life and the place where our thoughts are conceived. Nehemiah is telling them that their lies are essentially coming straight from their evil heart. Look at verse 9. There's nothing more than an attempt to intimidate God's people. 
Hey, if we can get them to be afraid, they'll be too weak to work. It's hard to get the job done when you're distracted by fear. So what does Nehemiah do? He responds with prayer. He cries out to God and asks God to strengthen his hands. The enemy wanted their hands to be weakened, so Nehemiah asked for them to be strengthened. No matter how tough things got, Nehemiah kept up the practice of prayer. No matter how hard things get, prayer and keeping with the work that God has called us to do is always right. The enemy has attacked with opposition in the form of intrigue and the form of innuendo, and Nehemiah has resisted. But Satan does not give up so easily. So let's see Satan's subsequent attempt of intimidation. Try to say that fast. The enemy has attacked from every angle. Brings opposition to Nehemiah, trying to get him to stop the building. A good leader knows the enemy's not going to just give up. In the following verses, we are introduced to a new person, a religious person, who the enemy uses to oppose Nehemiah. So let's see, as, as we look at this, let's see the deception of Shemaiah. The next tactic of the enemy, the deception, intimidation, trying to cause Nehemiah to fear for his life. To do this, Sanballat and Tobiah hire a false prophet to deceive Nehemiah and draw him into the temple. Basically, Shemaiah shut himself up in his house, pretending to be in danger. And he says to Nehemiah, I've received a message from God that your enemies are coming to kill you. So you need to come into the temple and hide, Nehemiah. So the goal is to get Nehemiah to protect himself by unlawfully hiding in the temple. Non-priests were not allowed to flee for protection to the altar in the temple courtyard. It was not allowed. And then we see the distinction of the servant. Look what Nehemiah says. Should such a man as I run away? Nehemiah is a man of distinction. He's a man of faith and fortitude. He stood head and shoulders above the other man. He was a man of men of his day. He was not the kind of man who would allow fear to dictate his life. He'd stood his ground from day one. Why should he flee now? Scripture tells us, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 18, 1 and 2. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27, 1. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans eight thirty one. I want to make note of three things concerning Nehemiah's distinction as a servant. First, notice his dedication. His dedication. He's wholly dedicated to God and his cause. Even to save his own life, he's not willing to go against God. A good leader is dedicated to God and to God's word. Nehemiah says emphatically, I will not go in. Oh, dear 
Christian, we need to establish some I will nots in our life. We need to take a stand and say, I will not go against God nor his word. Secondly, look at his discernment. In verse 12, it says that Nehemiah understood and saw. He's able to discern what's going on. The sermon is all throughout the book of Nehemiah. Being a man of wisdom, Nehemiah is able to recognize the enemy's deceitfulness. Nehemiah discerned that Shemaiah was a false prophet because his message was contrary to the word of God. He had to know God's word in order to recognize that. God's word clearly stated that only priests were allowed to enter the temple and that anyone else who entered went in under penalty of death. Nehemiah knew that Shemaiah was hired by his enemies and they were trying to get him to act on fear instead of faith and hiding in God's house. If he had fallen for it, he would be discredited and his reputation destroyed. Thirdly, look at Nehemiah's desire. He trusts in the Lord. He asked God to take care of his enemies. Nehemiah believed in the law of sowing and reaping. And he asked God to reward his enemies according to their own works. When Satan sends people to oppose you and try to tempt you into disobedience, respond with fearless obedience and prayer. The last thing I want us to see this morning, the last point, Nehemiah's stunnish, stunning accomplishment in Satan's infiltration. What we learn from this last section is that all of the hard work and all of the sacrifice and all of the toil was worth it. We notice that, that the right determination produces the right results. The people were tired, but they ended up triumphant. They worked hard and they endured many problems, but God blessed them. And the job is completed. So let's see the realization of the work in verse 15. We read that the wall's finished. This is what uh, in, this is in what would be our month of September. Just 52 days after the work began, the wall's done. An amazing accomplishment. And a miracle of God's doing, Jerusalem, Jerusalem's walls had been reduced to rubble, laid in ruin for over 100 years. 100 years in ruin and 52 days, the work is done. The blessing and the power of God upon his people is clearly seen in the fact that they brought the work to fruition in less than two months. They persevered. They overcame every obstacle the enemy brought their way. The opposition, the threats, the internal strife, the financial difficulties, the weariness, it had been overcome and their resolve paid off. It is tragic that so many believers quit before the job is complete and they stop short of their potential. These workers are steadfast in their work. And if we want the work to get done... Then we can notice three things that we've seen here from the workers. First, there must be leadership. Without leadership, the work won't get done. Second, there must be labor. There has to be a committed group that's willing to follow the leadership and actually do some work. And finally, there must be love. God must work in the heart of the leadership as well as the workers. If they do not have a heart for God, then the work will fail. Paul said this, therefore, my beloved brothers, 
Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Church, the steadfast commitment of the workers is essential for the completion of the work. If what you're doing is right, then you keep on doing it. If it's not right, then you stop doing it. So don't stop reading your Bible. Don't stop praying. Don't stop attending church. Don't stop sharing the gospel. Don't stop giving. The list could go on and on. Why do we not stop these things? Because they are good. And someday we will see the hard work and the commitment pay off. We work with the assurance that our labor, that the work that we're doing is not in vain. Notice the remorse of the enemy. Verse 16. Tells us Nehemiah's enemies fell greatly in their esteem. They were disheartened by the completion of the wall. They had set out from the very beginning to stop the work, but God's people had the victory. Faithfulness pays off. All the problems they faced only proved to widen the circle of God's grace when the wall was finished. Even though Nehemiah and the workers had worked hard on the wall, notice their enemies attributed their success not to Nehemiah and the workers, but to God. May this serve as a model for us. We should work hard as if success depended on us. But we should trust totally on the Lord, knowing that unless he builds it, we labor in vain. We want even God's enemies to glorify God. And lastly, let's see the rebellious infiltration. We think it's over. The wall's built. Surely this, well, we just wrap up Nehemiah. He did exactly what he was supposed to do, right? But it doesn't end there. Because we have this rebellious infiltration. Tobiah, the governor of the Ammonites, was most likely a nominal half-Jew. Furthermore, he's related by marriage to at least two influential Jews. And he had business contracts with these men. And they were disloyal men who were in rebellion against God. And they were communicating with Tobiah so that he knew exactly what was going on. And Tobiah displayed his true colors by writing these threatening letters to Nehemiah. And just like Tobiah had people who had infiltrated the ranks don't you mistake it, church. Satan has people that have infiltrated the ranks. It happens all the time. God's Word tells us, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago was designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ, Jude 4. Just like Tobiah, Satan puts his people in the midst of God's work. And they're not there to build God's kingdom. They're there to destroy it. They're there to hinder the work. They're there to tear down everything that God's workers do. They're the ones that sit back there, arms folded. I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not no part of that. Destroying, tearing down the work of God. I want to give you three practical lessons in closing that we take from this passage of Scripture. Three practical lessons. One, do not expect perfection in Christian work. Do not expect perfection in Christian work. We can and should expect God to accomplish significant advances for his kingdom through our labors, just like Nehemiah did by rebuilding the wall. However, we must bear in mind that until Jesus comes again, there are no and they lived happily ever after endings. Even after the completion of the wall, the enemy infiltrated the ranks and stirred up more trouble. There is no such thing as a perfect church. I know that's hard to believe. I know that you think that First Baptist Church in Washington, Illinois, is a perfect church. But we are not. Because we are in a fallen world. And if you expect a perfect church, you will quit out of frustration. People do it all the time, Right? Well, I don't, I don't like this church, and I don't like that church, and I don't like this church, and I don't like that church. And they're searching for the perfect church because they think the grass is greener on the other side, but there's dog dew in that yard as well. You must trust God to use you to advance his cause, but refuse to fall into the trap of, perfect, of perfectionism. Secondly, We must never put confidence in our work, but only in the God who enables us to work. We must never put confidence in our work, but only in the God who enables us to work. Nehemiah could not sit back and and admire the great wall that he had built because there's ongoing problems that force him to keep on fighting and trusting the Lord. In the church, we have a tendency to think some sort of program or some sort of building project or some other accomplishment will somehow solve all the problems of the church. If only, if only we had a program to fix our church. If only, if only we, if we started building something, people would notice that we're building something and it, and it, will, it will solve all our problems. However, we no sooner achieve our goal and there's another problem. The Lord uses these things to keep our attention and focus on Him rather than kicking back and trusting in all that we can do or accomplish and do on our own. Number three. When God's people compromise with the world, it hinders God's work. When God's people compromise with the world... It hinders God's work. Tobiah and his son had intermarried with some of the Jewish nobles. He had convinced them that he was a good guy, 
even though he is militantly opposed to Nehemiah's wall project. Later on, during Nehemiah's absence and returning to Persia, Tobiah managed to get and uh, get personal quarters in the temple. We're going to see this later. I can't wait to get there because you know what Nehemiah does? He returns and he sees what's going on, recognizes it for what it is, which is a compromise with the world, and he personally throws his household goods out. It's going to be fun when we get there. Chapter 13, if you want to read ahead. May each and every one of us ponder the Apostle John's warning. And may we do it often when he said, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2.15 There's a story of a lady who never spoke poorly of anyone. A friend told her, I believe you would say something good even about the devil. Well, she replied, You certainly do have to admire his persistence. She's right. The devil is persistent. He will constantly bring opposition. Count on it. We have to finish the course. We have to fight the good fight. We have to discern. We have to resist opposition. He wants to oppose us, church. He wants to oppose anything that our church may want to do. Anything that would advance the kingdom of God in our body, Satan is opposed to. And he wants to oppose us through intrigue, through innuendo, through intimidation, and through infiltration. But when our Lord returns, we will triumph over this evil terrorist known as Satan. What are you doing to oppose him? What are you doing? To oppose Satan. His attacks in your life. His attacks on our church. Can you even discern them? Are you able to look and say, oh, this is Satan attacking? Can you even look in the church and say, oh, I can see Satan attacking here in our church? I said in Sunday school we have a tendency to over-spiritualize everything. I'm not, I'm not speaking of that. I'm not, I'm not saying like you, 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 know, you make a mistake or something. You're like, oh, Satan's attacking me. Are you able to discern his attack? Are you susceptible to false doctrine? Do you know what good doctrine even is? If somebody stood in our pulpit and started declaring false doctrine, would you even understand it as false doctrine? God's word tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So let me ask you again, how are you standing firm against the opposition of the devil? How are you doing? Because it's not someone else's job to stand firm. It's yours. How will you handle opposition when it comes your way, church? Because Satan desires to come after us through intrigue, through innuendo, through intimidation, and ultimately infiltration. Will you recognize it? Or will you allow it to stop you dead in your tracks? Let's close a prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. It is faithful and true. Lord, I pray for us this morning. Lord, I pray that we would be able to recognize the opposition when it comes our way. I am genuinely fearful that we won't. Oh, Lord, that we'd understand that that Satan comes with, with the intrigue. Things sounding good. The sound right. He comes with the innuendo, the accusations. He comes with the intimidation. He even comes with infiltration. Oh, Lord, that we as your people would recognize the opposition and we would advance forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ knowing that you Lord said you said I will build my church the very gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. Oh, Lord, we are your church. That we would storm the gates of hell, knowing that they would not be able to stand. Help us to be ready. Help us to move forward. Help us to carry your gospel to Washington, to Illinois to the ends of this earth if you've spoken to us this morning I pray that we'd respond whether we need to pray in our pew whether we need to come forward and ask for some prayer whether we need to um, however you've spoken maybe, maybe today 
someone realize that they're not even a believer for the first time they realize that they don't know Christ maybe today they need to have that conversation however you've spoken to us I pray that we would respond I pray this in Jesus name amen as we sing you be willing to come this morning let's go ahead and stand please